Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's working. Good. <laughs> this is actually my third time up here. Before we started this cohort thing, um, the church was moving in the direction of letting some people get up and preach. So this is number three for me. I, I spent 40 years of my life as a high school teacher. So I never imagined that I would be doing this in my retirement. Um, there was a time... Uh, back in college, that I started in pre-sem. That's not seminary, pre-sem. And I did that for a year and a half and felt very restless. Didn't feel at all that I was called by God to be a pastor. So it was a long journey. I was actually in law school for a while. And I finally ended up as a teacher, and I loved it. I spent 40 years of my life as a teacher but this is an interesting thing. So this is my third time. The first time I did it, I, uh, I shared uh, something that I found that for my life was critical, and that is to have a personal relationship with the Lord, intimacy with God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Seek him, and you will find him. In other words, the Bible says the ball's in your court. You want intimacy? Seek him. The second time, I did something way different. Probably blew some of you away. I preached on the history of the Jewish people getting their land back, which is in the Bible. Tons of prophecies. And I, uh, I traced the history going back about 200 years ago. If you went 200 years ago and said, what are the chances that the Jewish people were scattered all over the world would ever get their land back and settle it? You'd say, zero. But I said in that sermon, God can do anything. And he brought the people of, the, you know, the Jewish people back to the Holy Land. And they're living there today since 1948. So now we have this uh, cohort. And I'm number three. So I'm preaching. And I, I, I'll tell you how it goes. Um, they don't actually say, this is what you're preaching on. Or rather, they give you like passages to look at. And of course, I got passages that had to do with Lent. I knew it would be Lenten season. Um, and we have our, you know, the, the Victory Point, you know, Bible reading program. So this goes back like, oh, I don't know, probably a month ago. I was just searching, what am I going to do? And can you put the, the verse up there from... I came across this verse. It's from Psalm 121. Um, it's a song that the Jewish people, it's called the Song of Ascent. When they were going to Jerusalem for, say, a festival or something like that, um, they would recite these songs. They would sing them or chant them. So imagine people going to Jerusalem, which is up at the top of a mountain, and there's other mountains around, if you've ever been to Jerusalem. Not a high mountain, not like the Rocky Mountains. But they would be going up, and they would recite this. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I remember memorizing that psalm when I was younger. And I just sort of like felt like a... Like this, I connected with that psalm and those verses. So, you know, if you look at the second verse, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
for Christians, that has a meaning to us because our help comes from God, who's the maker of everything. But if you gave a verse like that to somebody who didn't know much about the Bible or didn't understand the whole purpose of the Bible, they might think that God's not doing a very good job because there's lots of problems in this world. I just read the other day that we finally have come to the point that the population of the world is 8 billion people. It's like, whoa. It has really, really, really expanded and exploded in the last 75 years or so. But throughout most of history, the population of the world was very, very low. Why? Wars, plagues, epidemics, um, famines, brutal dictators, all sorts of reasons. And of course, it was back in the days when people didn't know much about medicine or modern technology, and so the population of the world has been small for a long, long time. I mean, when you think of the size of the world, Columbus just found America 500 years ago. In these North and South America, we're basically empty. Oh, I, I know there were indigenous people here, but there's almost hardly anybody living here. But if you go back to, say, Bible times, they used to do something in Bible times when one nation would conquer another nation. This happened, remember, to the, the ten northern tribes, and then later it happened to the people of Judah. They would conquer them, and then they would make them leave their land. So they'd have to just pack up whatever they could carry on their back, leave their houses, and they would move them like 300 miles away. Well, how do, you, how do you take a group of people, like, say, 3 million people, and move them 300 miles and plant them? There's got to be all kinds of empty land. Well, there was. I mean, really, the population of the world was small through the centuries and through the millennium, and it has only exploded in recent years. In the latter part of the 1800s, people that study this said that we reached about a billion and then as we got into the 20th century, it started to move up to billion and a half, pushing two. And then if you know anything about the first half of the last century, what, World War I, then at the end of World War I, there was a flu epidemic. It was sort of like we're used to today, these epidemic, these plagues. It killed more people than World War I did. Then you get the Great Depression in the 1930s. There was worldwide famine. Then you had World War II. And then you had the Holocaust. So by the time that was over, the population of the world had plunged down again. But since 1945, it has just exploded. So that today there's 8 billion people on the face of the planet. I mean, this is unprecedented. And when you think about that, Eight billion people. And I talked about in my last message how the gospel is pushing into parts of the world that has never pushed before, into the Hindu world and the Muslim world and the Buddhist world. And there's people that study this say there's more people living today than have ever lived since Adam and Eve. Wrap your mind around that. There's more people living today than if you go from Adam and Eve all the way up until, say, recent decades, it didn't come to 8 billion. And there's 8 billion today. 
So when you just think about the gospel and the fact that we have that many people, pretty amazing thing. So going back to the story of this verse, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you the story of what I was thinking about, say, a month ago, as I was thinking about this sermon. My help comes from the Lord. And I began to think about the fact that for most people that didn't know anything about the gospel or knew very little, that verse would not mean much. Because they go like, what help do we get? So I began to think about the whole long sweep of history through the Bible, from the Garden of Eden all the way to Revelation. I mean, in my mind, I was trying to figure out where am I going to go with this? So, you know the story of the Garden of Eden. God made this beautiful garden. It was like a heaven on earth. I think that was God's plan, to plant a heaven here on earth. It would be a place where there was no sin, where mankind would live in perfect harmony with God. And there was only a few people at first, but I think God's plan would be, as the number of people expanded, the garden would grow, and more people, the garden would grow, until eventually this earth would be an Eden. That was his plan. But it didn't happen. Man sinned and got kicked out of the garden. And so we don't know how long ago that was or how many people were in the Garden of Eden. Was it just Adam and Eve or were there more people? Because right when the story is over, all of a sudden there's all these people. So maybe there were more people. God, you know, God doesn't give us all the details. But mankind was kicked out of the garden and the beautiful garden plan, this utopia, this heaven and earth was destroyed. So what happens next? You probably remember the flood. Man got so bad. There's a verse I memorized years ago, not because it's such an amazing verse. It's a terrible verse. It says, this is just before the flood, that every imagination of the heart of man was only evil continually. Think about that. Every imagination of the heart of man was only evil continually. Whoa. I mean, that's worse than today. I mean, mankind just plummeted, and it was so evil that God said, okay, I'm going to destroy everybody. And he saved only Noah and his family. But as you read those early chapters, you begin to see a hint that God was going to fix this thing. You know, he didn't abandon mankind. He just came up with a different plan. And that's where in my mind I came up with this plan or this theme or this, this message. This was God's grand rescue plan because people that he had planted in the Garden of Eden who messed up, then the flood came and they get so evil that it's almost beyond imagination. God does not abandon us. And so you begin to trace the history through the Bible of God's plan to rescue us. Now, we're in the Lenten season, and so, you know, it was kind of a natural thing um, for me to preach about the cross because that's where it all ends up, right? Um, all through the Old Testament, we don't know for sure, but there's, God gives us sort of like hints about what he's going to do. And then in the New Testament, 
it all comes to fulfillment. Jesus and the cross. But you know what? As I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's not the end of it. Because it started with Eden. It doesn't end with the cross. It ends with heaven, right? Heaven is the replacement of Eden. So now we have God's new plan, which would be, we live this life, we follow Jesus, and because of what he did on the cross, he gives us heaven instead of Eden, because Eden is gone. I grew up in the church. I've heard hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons. I've sat in Sunday school classes and youth group and all sorts of things. And as I reflected on that, I thought, we talk about heaven, you know, we mention it, but I don't ever remember a sermon that I heard on heaven. I don't ever remember having a class about heaven. I don't ever remember having any teaching on heaven. I just hear the word heaven. (laughs) Well, that struck me as sort of odd. So I started to do a little research. I discovered that it's true. Seminaries do not teach seminarians about heaven. No classes in it. No studies in it. So if seminaries don't teach it, pastors don't teach it. Well, I thought that was really odd. If heaven is the replacement of Eden, and that's where we're all heading, why wouldn't you talk about it? Then I discovered there's a lot of misconceptions about heaven. Let me give you some of them. We're going to go to heaven and walk on streets of gold. It's not in the Bible. It's in a song somewhere, but it's not in the Bible. Um, Heaven is, you get it to heaven, you go through the pearly gates. You ever hear that one? Not in the Bible. There's pearly gates, but not into heaven. Or, and this is, this is one that I discovered by doing research, many people do not look forward to heaven because they think it's going to be one grand worship service and we're, all we're going to do is sing forever and ever and ever and ever. And they go like, I hate singing. Or I have a terrible voice. Well, that's not in the Bible either. Nothing in the Bible about singing forever. In fact, that's how it even mentions it. So, I thought, how many verses are there in the Bible? And it's easy to figure out. There's, there's some that are passages, you know, like you get a verse or three verses or half a chapter. And there's others that are just like one line. There's a lot of them. I discovered there's more about heaven in the Bible than there is about a lot of our key doctrines. Isn't that interesting? We always hear about our doctrines, but we never hear about heaven. So you got to know me. I'll do it. So I read every verse in the Bible that has to do with heaven and every passage. And I'm going to give you a summary of what I read. Now remember, this is not scholarly I didn't go to some book to study. I just read the Bible, so it's, I'm sure there are things that are not exactly perfect. I'm going to give you a summary of what the Bible says about heaven. And there's going to be things that might surprise you. It says that in heaven there will be no suffering of any kind. No tears, no pain, 
No sorrow, no death, no crying, nothing like that. You know what the word is that describes heaven? Joy. Everlasting, perpetual joy. That's what we have in heaven. Doesn't that sound cool? I mean, you ever had joy where something happens in your life and you're just going, oh, I'm just so happy. What if you had that forever and ever and ever and ever? Perpetual, everlasting, eternal joy. That's what heaven is. There's never any sorrow. There's never any tears. There's never any pain. Number one. Another thing about heaven. Do you know that there's no genders? We're not going to be male and female. So we're not going to get married. When you're in heaven, you will not have a gender. But there will be a marriage. Anybody know who we're going to marry? Yes. (laughs) Is that cool or what? There's going to be a thing called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And I imagine it's everyone that's after the judgment. We're all there. And we're going to marry Jesus. There's going to be this huge celebration. And we're going to have his name embedded in our forehead forever. Is that cool or what? Now, I don't know, maybe it'll be Yeshua. That was his Jewish name. And then you say, well, what's the purpose of this? It says that we will, for eternity, rule and reign with Jesus. We will rule and reign with him. But it doesn't say who we're going to rule and reign over. (laughs) Maybe the angels. It says that we're going to judge the angels. But I have a feeling there's going to be more people in heaven than just humans. I don't know. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus for eternity. I thought that was really cool. There's no sun in heaven. You know, we get our light from the sun. In fact, daylight savings time is a good reminder. We follow the sun. We get half the time is darkness and half of the time it's sunny. Now, I don't care where you live, North Pole, South Pole, no matter where you live, you get equal amount of sunlight and darkness. So we spend half our life in the dark. Now, that was really something years ago when all they had was candles. Heaven, there will be everlasting, perpetual light. But where does it come from? It doesn't come from the sun, from God. God is light. So God will light up all of heaven forever. And there'll never be any darkness, never be any night. There's a city mentioned in the Bible. You might guess which one it is, Jerusalem. Are there other cities? We don't know. Jerusalem, there's a heavenly Jerusalem, which someday is going to, after the judgment, there's going to be a a new heaven and a new earth and Jerusalem is going to be planted back here, the new Jerusalem. But you can go into Jerusalem, the city, and here's where you get the pearly gates. The gates of Jerusalem are made of pearl and they're named after the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's where you get the pearly gates. And there are 12 foundations to Jerusalem named after the 12 disciples. So I guess you can visit Jerusalem if you want to. I don't know. Maybe you do that once a year. Oh, wait a minute, there's no years. I, I don't, it just doesn't say. Are there other cities? It doesn't say. 
Well, where are we going to live? Remember that verse? In my Father's house are many mansions. Well, it's a Greek word. It could be places, places to live, houses. But Jesus said one time, in my Father's house are many mansions. We're going to have a mansion someday that we're going to live in, in heaven. So he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a mansion. And they're waiting. I mean, it sounds like in the Bible, they're waiting right now. There's places are prepared for us. We get there. Boom, there's your place. Boy, that is pretty neat. So God is waiting for us to get there so he can give us our mansion. All right. Another thing. Probably the biggest passage on heaven is found in Revelation 4 and 5. It's the throne room scene. The throne room scene. But it's not really a worship scene. I want you to just picture in your mind what this looks like. Now you can't do that. But this is what it says. God is on his throne. You can't see him because, remember it says in the Bible, you cannot see God and live. So he will still be shrouded. He's sitting on his throne and around the throne there are 24 elders seated in thrones. Who are the 24 elders? Doesn't say. Over the top, there's a huge rainbow. And there's constantly lightning and thunder. Kind of get that in your your mind, the atmosphere. And the, the 24 elders, every once in a while, get out of their chairs and they bow down before God and they worship him. And they take off their crowns, which are made of gold. There's a river flowing from this throne. It's a river of crystal. And it flows into a crystal sea. I mean, it's a pretty impressive scene in Revelation 4. And you would think that it has to do with like setting the stage for like this, you know, this massive worship scene. But then you just get to the point where it explains everything. And then what happens is a lamb comes walking into the throne room. A lamb. Well, who would that be? Jesus is the lamb, right? So it's, it's a prophetic message because Jesus walks in as a lamb because when he comes back in the judgment, he's not going to come back as a lamb. The first time he came as a lamb, the second time he's coming back as a lion. Power. But he comes in this vision of the throne room. He comes as a lamb and he's holding a scroll. You know, they didn't have books back. I mean, back in, books are really modern things. Books have only been around for 500 years. So most of history, they had scrolls. You know, you, you go like this. And when they closed the scroll, they would put a seal on it. They'd close it. They'd put some wax on it. This scroll has seven seals. And the next four or five chapters is how they open the seals And as you open the seals, it's a prophetic message for the future of the world. So many of those things have actually happened already. You know, there's a lot of interpretations of Revelation, but those are the interpretations, those opening of the seven seals. 
There's no temple in heaven. Remember Paul discusses this? Even though we have a city of Jerusalem, there's no temple. Because what did they do in the Old Testament at the temple? They did two things. They offered animal sacrifices. Well, we sure wouldn't do that anymore, not even in heaven. And the other thing, you had the Holy of Holies in the temple. Well, that isn't necessary anymore because we'll be in heaven with God. We don't need a Holy of Holies. And even now, he lives within his people. So there's no temple. Now, that's about the end of the bigger passages. But there's a lot of verses and statements So from this point on, I'm going to start telling you about some of the things that it says in the Bible that are statements of Paul or Jesus, where it's not like a description of heaven, but it's a statement about heaven. And let me just preface it by saying this. This often has to do with death, because when do you go to heaven after you die? Heaven's view and the biblical view of death is way different in ours. Now I know sometimes we have tragic deaths. A little child gets killed or you have an accident or somebody dies early of cancer. But when we think of death of an older person who's lived, you know, 75, 80, 85 years, you've lived your life, it is very different than what we think of. Because we have a, a notion of death that's still a sort of sadness, a parting. We have funerals that are often kind of sad, you know. You get a little booklet from the funeral home that says so-and-so will be married, buried at their final resting place at Pilgrim Home Cemetery. Oh, is that different than the Bible? Let me tell you what it says. All these statements. First of all, Jesus said, great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. And he says, don't spend a lot of time on this earth laying up treasures here. Lay up treasures in heaven. Because... Heaven is our treasure. That's number one. Secondly, Jesus said death has no sting. Boy, that's not the way we see it. Somebody dies, we feel sad. You know, we have a funeral, we talk about this person's life, and there's a sadness. Jesus said death has no sting. So you should set our hearts in heaven. We should all be longing for heaven. That's what Jesus said. Set your hearts on heaven. That doesn't sound like something you're going to dread or fear or wonder about. It's like, this is our reward. Another one says, heaven is our real home. This is a fake home we got right here. This is just pretend. This is short term. This is the result of sin in the world. We're living in this broken world. Heaven is our real home. So there's all kinds of verses to suggest that when we die, that's when we actually go home. We don't usually think that way. Number four, there's verses that say that we should long for heaven, which means that we should almost like, Lord, will you take me now? I mean, that sounds kind of crazy. But we should long for heaven, not fear it. There's nothing to fear. Nowhere in the Bible is there any verse or anything that talks about fearing heaven. We should long for it, not fear it. Last one. 
Death is not the end. It's the beginning. That's really different. Because we tend to think you live, you know, 80 years and then you die and it's the end. No, I know we, we believe in heaven, but it's sort of in our mindset. In the Bible, death is not the end. It's the beginning. It's when you're really going to live. It's when you're going to go home. You sh- there's great joy in heaven. And the dwelling place of God is with his people. So God is longing for us to get there. The cemetery is not our final resting place. Now, what I'd like to do right now is uh, invite the band up, but I I am going to do something else, but it won't take me real long. But if the band could come up right now. Um, I I hope those were significant to you. I think I have a few, like a couple takeaways. Um, One of the takeaways I have is conclusions is, why are funerals so sad? Now, I'm not talking about a tragic death, but of an older person who's lived a Christian life. There's still a sadness often because the Bible, if you follow the Bible, funerals, we'd have a dance. Well, Dutch people wouldn't, but, (laughs) you know, I mean, it would almost be like you should have a celebration, so I think I'm going to tell my sons when I die, please, have a celebration. I won't be there. I'm home. But yet we still have funerals that often are very sad. And then the second conclusion or takeaway is this. Why is it that we don't emphasize heaven very much? Why do we just sort of ignore it? I, I don't know. If heaven is our real home, our permanent home, our eternal home, why don't we talk about it more? Why don't we stress it more? Why don't we long for it more? There is something that has occurred in the last 20 years that I think God has given us in these last days. But Paul had one of these Back in the Bible times. I don't know if you know that Paul was stoned two times. He has this time where he lists all the terrible things that happened to him. He was shipwrecked. He was put in prison. He was stoned two times. Well, when a person is stoned, the purpose of stoning something is to kill him. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, talks about his experience of going up to the third heaven. And you go, like, what is that? Well, in the Jewish mindset, the third heaven is what we would call heaven. The sky is the first heaven. Up there, there's a place where angels and, and demons intersect. That's the second heaven. And then the, the heaven of God is the third heaven. And he writes about that, but you can even tell Paul was a little bit uncertain of what it was all about. Well, today, we are having these all the time. I just saw one on Facebook the other day. We revive people who are dead. I mean, if you're dead, what does that mean? Your heart's not beating? You're not breathing. Years ago, if that happened, if you came across a dead body, and you say, this person is dead, you'd go like, well, they're dead. Not anymore. I saw this on, on Facebook. A policeman pulls up behind a car. 
he can't, it's daytime, but he can't see what's going on. So he walks up there very cautiously and opens the door and then immediately calls in on his phone. He's obviously calling the rescue people because the person behind the wheel is dead. He pulls them out and puts them on the side of the road and begins to do chest compressions for about two minutes. And all of a sudden he stops, the person comes back to life. This is happening by the thousands today. If you stop breathing, your heart stops. Many times people are, are, are completely resuscitated. Um, the first one I ever read about a guy by the name of Marv Besteman. I'm sitting in Barnes and Nobles having a cup of coffee, and I picked this book off the Christian self, and I read it, and, and he lived in, 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 I think it was Byron Center, and he had died, was resuscitated, came back, and had all these stories about what happened. Now, I discovered in doing some research that when anything like that would happen, say, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, I mean, I'm sure once in a while people, you know, were resuscitated, they would shut them down. They'd go like, don't talk that way. That's crazy talk. That's like from the devil. Not anymore. So I read this book, Marv Besterman, and he's describing what happened while he was dead. Well, then after a while, every time I went to Barnes & Noble, there was another book because it kept happening. Well, they don't write books anymore. They write anthologies. They're that thick with about 200 of them in there because it's happening to such a degree. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't know about that. Let me tell you, if you would read them, you wouldn't think that way because there's so many of them. There's a guy, and I'll just finish with this, there was a man who was a research person, and he was in the medical field. And he thought that all these people were making these stories up because, you see, they are very genuine, and they don't contradict each other. And, and when you read them, they're very powerful. I mean, people will, will look down in their body, and they'll, they'll see the doctors and the nurses working on their body. And it's like they're, you know, they're, their body's there, but their soul and spirit is looking down. And, and then after maybe just a few moments, they see this light and they find themselves going through this tunnel and they arrive in heaven. And then they meet their relatives, parents, loved ones. Jesus is often there. And then they have these heaven experiences. But then back on earth, they've been revived. And they're back in their body. Well, this research guy was not a Christian, did not believe in the afterlife, and he was going to prove that this was all hokum, that these people were just making this up. So he interviewed over a thousand people that had a near, that's what they call a near-death experience. You die, then you come back to life. And his purpose was to prove that these people were fraudulent. And when he got done, it took years. His conclusion was, I now know there is an afterlife. I now know there is an afterlife. Now, he didn't say if he became a Christian. That was the conclusion to all those years because it is overwhelmingly positive. And it's very, if you start reading these things, you go like, 
Now I know there's a heaven for sure, and I know what it looks like, because the minute people die, boom, their, their soul or spirit comes out of their body. Well, there's one more verse I'm going to read or tell you about. I didn't mention before, and it goes like this. Because it's the one verse that's sort of inscrutable. It says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive of what God is preparing for his people. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive. In other words, I can only imagine. We're going to sing that right now. (laughs) 